0: Well, today we begin the second chapter of Daniel, and uh, I had asked you to read it and take the chart that's in your note packet and as you read it, uh, because a part of the advantage that you and I have, there is a chart at the end of your packet that looks like this, that you might want, if you, if you have it, you might want to have close by, and then on that page, page uh, number four, is this chart, which tries to synthesize all of the visions and dreams of the Book of Daniel, putting them together, which is uh, it's it's absolutely magnificent. So um, you and I have the advantage that um, uh, Daniel, uh, when this begins, Daniel did not. You and I have the advantage, number one, of the entire Book of Daniel that we can look at and examine. Plus, we have the entire corpus of Scripture. We have all 66 books of the Bible, which at the the time of Daniel's writing of his book, he he and his readers did not. So we have a tremendous advantage, and uh, hopefully that advantage we can leverage to produce more understanding. So this vision is, uh, it's a dream really, excuse me, of Nebuchadnezzar is the first step and now that this next sentence is really important, is the first step in the book of Daniel of creating this framework. Now, I want to remind you of something, and it's in the note packet. I have it the first page, and I've broken it in the outline. I have a little paragraph on it as well. Remember that the first seven chapters of Daniel are written in Aramaic, the language of the empire, actually both of the Babylonian empire and the Persian empire. And that the reason that's important is because these chapters are addressed to the Gentiles. These are addressed to the non-Jews. Now remember, the covenant relationship that God established with the Jews is an extremely important covenant in Scripture. But here, what Daniel, uh, what the book of Daniel does is it helps us put together, in a very broad sense, the framework of human history the framework of the great empires. And then, as you will see, if we, I, it's a long chapter, so I don't know if we'll get the entire chapter finished, but you will see that this all culminates in the kingdom of God. So what you will see here, and, and it, as, as this all unfolds through the book of Daniel, it becomes more clear that these are genuine empires that we can identify in human history. And as a matter of fact, Daniel even names them so I mean there's there's no there is no doubt what's going on here. There's no equivocation, there's no well maybe, no, this is absolute certainty. This is the outline of Gentile world history. Without question. Nobody doubts that. And so it's it's just it's remarkable and it's very helpful for us. And finally, in terms just a reminder as way as by by way of introduction, it sounds humorous, but it's the point. All of these kingdoms are in rebellion against God. But in the end, God wins. Because that's, that's the whole point. God's kingdom will triumph. The Gentile rebellious kingdoms of humanity are not going to... And every one of these have all joined the dustbin of history. You know, and you can't even go and visit the remnants of the Babylonian empire because that's Iraq. Who wants to visit Iraq today? As a tourist, you can't visit the remnants of the Persian Empire. That's Iran. Who would visit Iran today? And, and so the the uh, and the remnants of the Alexander's Empire in Macedonian and Greece. And nobody in their right mind would visit Greece today. <laughs> so you know it's just, and I, I'm being a little humorous there, but so it's 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 a refreshing, but it is also a compelling vision, creating this truth statement god is sovereign and god has everything under control and i don't know about you but i wake up in the morning and i look at my phone i've I've got a couple news summaries that are emailed to me every morning and i read them i think oh my goodness there's going to be another really great day you know i mean all these these ominous things that you you just cannot avoid god has everything under control all right now, that's just some introductory stuff, part review, part overview. Is anybody questions? Are you with me? I hope God picks a good president. It's
1: <laughs> <He's> coming up. <laughs> well, I don't he, know he is, is sovereign.
0: All right, let's begin. Chapter 2, if you're following, it's on page 4. We're going to be introduced again to this individual we saw in Chapter 1. Now you're going to get to know him. It's King Nebuchadnezzar one of the most significant individuals in world history. I mean, he is, he, is, he is without question one of the most significant in the history of the world as a ruler. And his empire, the Babylonian, or technically the neo-Babylonian empire, was one of the most formidable. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Now, the second year of his reign, that would be 603 B.C. That's the year we're talking about. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream, so they came in and stood before him. Now, don't be particularly bothered by all those labels. Verse 2, magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, Chaldeans, these are the king's advisors. This isn't necessarily, they're ranked in any way. These are their, advi- now this was very typical in the ancient world anyway, but the advisors were astrologers. They'd read the stars. They cut, cut up animals and read their livers. I mean, there were all kinds of really, really weird things they would do to try to tell the future. And so these different labels, magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, Chaldeans, are all the different groups of these individuals who advised the king who would use all kinds of occult means to determine the future. Is that enough? Does that make sense? In other words, there's a little nuance of difference, but it's not that important for what we're doing. So in other words, he just calls in all his advisors, the, the, the people that he depended on. Say, I'm going to do this. Do you think it's a good idea? Should I do it? What are the gods saying? So that's who he brings in. And this is what he says. Now, this, this is remarkable. The king said, verse 3, I had a dream. My spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now remember, Aramaic is the language of the court. It's the language of the empire. And that's the language of the first seven chapters of Daniel are written in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Now that is a very easy thing to do. Somebody tells you a dream, What does it mean? You can just tell them whatever you think it means. There's no test to it. I tell Joe, I had a dream last night, and Joe says, well, Jim, this is what I think it means. Well, what's the authoritative test I can use to test whether Joe's telling me something that's helpful? There is nothing. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar asked. The king answered and said, verse 5, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation." See, to tell somebody this is what a dream means. Ah, that's not terror. You can make up anything you want. That's not what he's asking them. What's he saying? Tell me the dream. Tell me what. The dream then tell was. me interpretation. What did I dream? Yeah, I mean this. Right. You know. So this is listen. Let me let me put it in kind of a philosophical way. This is a test of the entire world view of the Babylonian Empire. This is a world where they trusted in the conjurers and the magicians to determine the future through all kinds of occult means? And that's not a terribly difficult thing to do because there's no test of authority as to what you say it means. And Nebuchadnezzar is laying down a challenge to everything they did. I don't only want you to interpret the dream, I want you to tell me what the dream was. And if you don't, You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap, which was the way kings acted in the ancient world. Do what I want you to do, or you're going to lose your life and everything that you consider dear. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, verse 6, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore declare to me the the dream and its interpretation. Again, Remember that we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This book, among many other purposes, is written to encourage the Jews who are in exile. Right? They have been taken into exile. So as they read this, they are reading it through the grid of their worldview, which is what? There is one God, Yahweh, and he is the creator and sovereign ruler of this universe against a worldview under whom they now live, the Babylonians who believe in many, many gods and who have as the advisors and interpreters a whole bunch of magicians and occult people who try to determine the future through all kinds of occult means, which is true. As you're going to see, by the time we're done with the first seven chapters of Daniel, unequivocally they can say, our worldview is the right one. This Babylonian one is silly. So here's the first real test of that. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen the the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, and as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Nebi, you're being unreasonable. Now, that was just the Ekman paraphrase of verse 10. <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, you're being unreasonable. No one in the history of humankind up to this point has ever asked his advisors to do what you're asking us to do. What, in effect, are they saying to him? We can't do this. We can't do what you're asking us to do. So please, Nebuchadnezzar, don't kill us and tear us limb for limb and destroy our houses. We can't do what you are telling us to do. And as Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 9, you guys are lying, corrupt advisors. Amen. Now it's going to be proven that they're lying, corrupt advisors. All right? Would he have known uh, of the the prior Jewish prophets that could? Probably not yet, Matt.
1: But it's coming.
0: It's coming. As you're going to see, there there are several more chapters about Nebuchadnezzar. And when we get to the end of those chapters, which will be chapter four, um, we will ask this question Will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Because his decree, which is printed for us incomplete and total in chapter 4, it's a, it's an astonishing decree because it sounds as if, in the words of that decree, that he is saying Yahweh is the only true God. So we'll get to that in a minute.
1: They, they have that, if you go to, um, <clears throat> if you go to
0: where, they, where his kingdom was, that's still written on a wall, I think, isn't it? Um. Some. It, is, it, is in a, it is in a tablet that they found. I don't, I, maybe it is in a wall as well. I don't know. I don't think it is, but it might be. I know that they have, we have found tablets of, of, of that. And in addition, some of the things that are in Ezra and Nehemiah reflect this too. I mean, it, this is a real decree, the one that we'll see in chapter 4. All right, let's continue. Now, verse 11, remember, this is the, the advisors kind of pushing back on what Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do. Moreover, verse 11, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who can declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Okay, number one, they're saying, we can't do what you're asking. Number two, only gods can do what you're asking. And they don't live here. They're not mortal. Verse 12. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now, one of the things you see about Nebuchadnezzar is he's a typical ruler of the ancient world. He's absolute in his power. And if you don't do what he wants you to do, he's going to kill you. And it was very typical. So they just said, that's it. He's, he issues this empire-wide edict, all wise men. And the, the Greek, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, wise men is Magoi. What does that sound like? Magi. Which, that we'll talk about that at the end of this section. That connects us with Matthew too, when the Magi visit uh, Jerusalem to find out uh, where Jesus is born. But that's way ahead of the story. Verse 13. Now, I'm sure you realize this. That order to destroy all the wise men of Babylon would have included Daniel. Because Daniel is in the court. So this is now life-threatening for Daniel, but it's also probably their Hebrew names, or excuse me, their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this is not only these pagan advisors, these are the Jewish individuals who had been through the training that we studied last time we were together a couple weeks ago in chapter 1. So this is a significant turning point. Now, what's going to happen? Then verse 14, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. I'm reading from the New American Standard. And that's how they translate those words. Great translation. With discretion and discernment to Ariok, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Now we find a name there, the Babylonian name of a man who has been given the order by King Nebuchadnezzar to kill all these advisors. We know who it is. And Nebuchadnezzar knows, excuse me, and Daniel knows who it is. So he goes to him. And this is what he says. He answered and said to Ariok, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Why does Daniel need more time? Next verse. He wants to have a prayer meeting. He wants to have a prayer meeting. Before he goes into Nebuchadnezzar's court, he wants to pray about it. That seems to me to be sort of good applicational truth. Before you face something significant, bathe what you're doing in prayer. Talk to the Lord before you talk to others. That's not an original thought with me, by the way. Talk to the Lord before you talk to others.
1: They say when you're doing that, your frontal brain is what's working, and it'll disconnect everything else when you're praying, and then that's why you can really connect to God, is because the rest of your brain usually is working no matter what, but when you pray, all that other stuff stops. Like The rest of your brain can kind of stop, and then you can really talk to God.
0: I think and that's I, a scientific. I mean, scientifically, you know, I think ideally that's what we want to happen. And there is, you're right. There is some evidence among psychologists who don't even give a hoot about things of God that that indeed is what happens when, when we pray. Let's look at this little prayer session, and then what Daniel says in verse twenty—a remarkable passage as well verse, um, where am I here, verse 17. And Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, what's their Babylonian name? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about the matter, in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, don't skip over this so quickly. This, this is really something. In verse 18, again, New American Standard translates it this way, that they might request compassion from the God of heaven. Not demanding of God, not insisting of God, not mandating, but trusting in God's grace and his compassion. And so they're they're seeking the compassion and mercy of God. What do
1: you? Well, I notice my Bible says that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men. Mm-hmm. So he didn't pray for the rest of them. He was praying for.
0: <laughs> well in, in a way in a way that's right because they they are part of the covenant people and, and they are there uh, by God's direction and in a way you're right you're right. Verse 19 then the, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. then Daniel blessed the God of heaven so, they ask God for compassion, verse 18. Verse 19, God responds. Then Daniel launches into this, and in, in, probably in most of your, your translations, it's indented a little bit. Because this is actually like a praise hymn to God. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. Now, Daniel could have prayed, this is his prayer, it's kind of almost like a hymn type of, poetic type prayer. But there are two things. He could have focused on a lot of God's attributes. But he focuses on two. What are they? God's wisdom and God's power. Verse 21 focuses on his wisdom. And it is, excuse me, his power and it is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Now, just look at those two statements. What word that is a characteristic of God, what word summarizes he who changes the times and epochs, he removes kings and establishes kings. What word would you use? It starts with an S. Second letter's O. Sovereignty. sovereignty. Thank you, Joel. Took my hints and he <laughs> ran with it. It's 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 another way of summarizing the sovereignty of God. He is in control of time, and he is in control of leaders. That's what verse 21, first <coughs> half of verse twenty one, is saying. God is in control of time, and God is in control of leaders. Now, you would, you know, you realize, oh, that's good, yeah. Now start thinking about that just a little bit. Start thinking about that. He makes kings, he removes kings. This was written 603 B.C. Been much happened since 603 B.C.? Yeah, 2,600 years of history. And they've all been good, righteous, fair, equitable, just kings. Amen? (laughs) There are hardly any in that 26 years, hardly any that were that way. I mean, you will search history, and you're not going to come up with a very long list to find very many good, righteous, equitable, just kings. Let's just think of the 20th century. He removes kings and establishes kings. Does that include Adolf Hitler? Or do we want to say, oh, no, it does not apply to Hitler. (laughs) Where do you find that in Scripture? Okay, let's think of another wonderful individual of the 20th century. that apply to Joseph Stalin? Mao Zedong? Well, and just, you know, whoever you want to throw in there. Because the ancient world was filled with horrific rulers, terrible rulers, slaughtered huge numbers of people for their own personal ends. Here you see Nebuchadnezzar goes into a temper tantrum and threatens to kill everybody who's an advisor. These are not just men. These are not nice men. But God is in control of them. God is accomplishing his purposes. Because the one thing you always have to remember, this planet is a broken world it is a world that is in rebellion against God. You're not going to see righteous, equitable, just rulers. Daniel is affirming something here. He is a God who is sovereign. And then he says, in the middle of verse 21, he gives wisdom to wise men, knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. That darkness-light theme is throughout the word of God. Verse 23, To thee go, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. And what I did in my Bible is I drew a line from the end of verse 23 over to verse 17 and 18, they prayed this. God answered their prayer. And so Daniel launches into this magnificent prayer, affirming two, there are many more, but two of God's attributes and saying, God, you grant wisdom to whom you wish, and God, thank you, you have made known to me the kings matter. Remember back in verse uh, where is that verse 11 the advisors are saying nobody can do what you are asking Nebuchadnezzar except the gods who is about to do what the king asks daniel who has gotten the revelation from god what god Marduk the god of the chief god of the Babylonian empire no yahweh the god of israël And so you have this incredible little prayer, poetic expression, whatever you want to call it, stanza, that affirms, this is my God, this is what he's like, and he's asked, or excuse me, he has granted what I ask. He has made known to me what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. Now I am going in to talk to Nebuchadnezzar.
1: It seems really interesting that he has uh, knowledge of God and and a relationship with him that thinks of his own life being extinguished, but he's calm, yeah. he's systematic, he's believing, and it's, it's, I guess, kind of a platform for us to think of, regardless of circumstances. He is our God, he mm. is the only true God, he is a God that can do anything.
0: And he is in control. And if he is in control, we therefore can trust him. Can I tell you a story? It just happened last Tuesday. Before Peggy and I left for Pennsylvania, we were to fly out at 8 o'clock was our scheduled time to leave. We, uh, we you know, got up early and had an early breakfast. And we, and we both prayed, Lord, help us to magnify you and to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit as we're gone. Because, I mean, as you heard me say at the beginning, my parents, Peggy's mom, they're, they're elderly, they're not well. I and mean, it's just, you know, it's a difficult time in many ways. But to be able to show them the love and the patience and all the other things. And so we thought that's a good way to pray. So we didn't realize that that was really going to be tested in the next 26 hours. Both, we had two flights. The 8 o'clock flight was canceled due to mechanical problems. Then my agent who books my stuff rescheduled our flight for 3.30 that afternoon. That flight was canceled for mechanical reasons. Oh. It's 6 o'clock on Tuesday evening. We're still sitting in Omaha, So they rescheduled it again for us to go to Atlanta, to, from, from all to Atlanta and Atlanta up to Harrisburg. We got to my parents at 1.30 in the morning. They lost one of our bags, which we didn't get for an additional 48 hours. And uh, as we landed into Harrisburg, it was a miracle we got landed. There were major thunderstorms all around. The pilots, we circled for like 40 minutes almost. And then finally he said, we're going to try to scoot in on the southwest corner. So, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're coming in, and you just see these lightning and all this stuff all around you. And my wife's grabbing a hold of me. LAUGHTER and then we, we, the, my agent, she called ahead, and our, our car rental, we didn't get to the car rental place till almost one o'clock that morning. I mean, it was amazing, because she said, would you please stay there? Yeah, we'll stay there. So they did. It was wonderful. But the entire way down to my parents' home, it was an absolute pouring, torrential rain. Wow. I mean, it was just one of those things, remember what we prayed? <laughs> and we just kept thinking, okay, Lord, you're really wanting us to trust you and to exhibit this. I mean, that was, that was, that was the, I've never, I've flown all my life all over. I've never had two flights canceled on the same day for mechanical problems So it was just one of those things. Okay, Lord, are you in control? No. Sorry, Jim, this slipped up on my blind side. I missed this one. I didn't know this was going to happen to you. I'll try to make it up for you. No, that's not God. And so it's just, what, what Daniel does is he prays. And however God is going to answer it, it's okay with him. Now that sounds crazy, but if you really believe it is he who changes the times and epochs, he controls time, and he removes kings and staff, he is truly sovereign, is he capable of handling a day where two flights are canceled? Well, he showed he would. Now, let me tell you the second part of the story. Yesterday... We were scheduled to leave Harrisburg at 6.15 in the morning. At 7 o'clock, we were still sitting at the gate. Our connection in Detroit, we had 40 minutes. Hmm. So what was our conclusion? We're not going to make it. We're going to have Wednesday, oh, Tuesday, redo. We're going to replay Tuesday again. So it was really, this is really something. So we land in Detroit 45 minutes late. We were pretty sure we we're going to miss our flight. Do you know what? The plane we flew in Detroit was the plane that we would use to go to Omaha. So we didn't have to go to any gate. We didn't have to race. We didn't have to worry about luggage. That plane took us to Omaha. Isn't that, do you think God had something to do with that? I've never, in all the years I've flown, I've, that's never happened to me. Where the, where the flight I'm taking in is the flight I take to Omaha usually have to run to the other end of the airport. You know how that works, but I'm just kidding. But it was just, it was really something. Just those little tiny things of life. Yeah. You keep driving you back. What's my God like? Is he in control? Does he know this is happening? Is he going to take care of me? And the answer, of course, is yes. But sometimes he just says, now look, this is going to be a day for you to trust me. Are you going to trust me, Jim? Peggy, and he did. He showed his trustworthiness to us. Although I must tell you, by the time we got to Lancaster, at one thirty a.m., when, when it was Lord, we still trust you, but we're awfully glad we're here. Anyway, all right, let's I, move on.
1: I think what happens sometimes, though, is when you don't trust God, He goes, "Okay, well, then you drive," <laughs> and then it really gets. Well,
0: back. that's true. Then if we try, so to, I, I
1: use the same mm-hmm. nut- with my wife. We were driving up to Estes Park in a forty-foot motorhome last week. And she was complaining about my driving. I pulled over. I said, You can drive. <laughs> and I said, I trust you to drive. I know you don't trust me to drive, but I trust you to drive. And she drove to the top and she was like, Man, I wish I'd have kept my mouth shut. Because that's. You're a
0: very bold man. Yeah, that right? was not. It wasn't many many fun. husbands don't do that. It wasn't fun. Yeah, I just no. sat there and goes, Wow. You have your seatbelt on. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. But, you know, Matt, that's really, that's really a good way to put it. Though. Many times, that's exactly what, okay, you don't trust me? All right. And you, you want to take over? Yeah, okay. And then and then you take exactly. over. And then we get, you know, we get terribly frustrated, get anxiety ridden, <laughs> all of those things. And it is hard. I mean, when you're, well, you know, you've all been through those kinds of situations. It's really hard to say, okay, Lord, I know you're in control. We're going to trust you with it. You're going to take care of us. But that's the point. So Daniel is in that situation, far, far more ominous than anything I've ever been through. So then verse 24, he now goes to Ariok, this, the executioner, whom the king had appointed, to, in verse 24, to destroy the wise men. He went in and said, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation of the king. Then Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. We talked about that way back when we started. That's Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. And as I told you, Bel, B-E-L, is one of the Babylonian gods. So he's named after one of the Babylonian gods. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. Verse 28. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. Now let me stop there for just a minute. Don't miss 27 and 28. It is again a contrast of two worldviews. It's the utter bankruptcy of the Babylonian worldview. You... Can't do it. But I walk with a God who can do it. You see, I, I don't miss that. that that's, that's really, this is one of the high points of this narrative. The bankruptcy of the Babylonian worldview and the sufficiency of Daniel's worldview. I serve a God who can do it. And what he is about to reveal to you and through you, King Nebuchadnezzar, is an absolutely all inspiring vision of things to come. All summarized in that little phrase, "latter days." Verse twenty-nine. As for you, o King, while on your bed, your your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he, meaning God Yahweh, the God of Israel who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now, again, don't miss verse 29. The true living God has chosen you, Nebuchadnezzar, to reveal a mystery. He is going to use you to reveal something that's going to explain human history. And you're the vehicle. I am only the one God is using to interpret it. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue was was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. Now, again, if if you want this we don't exactly know what it looked like, but this is about the simplest because the other one at the top of the page of your notes, this is about the, it's about all oh, five six pages from the end. But I mean, it's something as simple as you can possibly get. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet, p- its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So, if, you know, I hope you're following this. this, because the interpretation is going to come over in verse 36 and following. But you, in effect, have a statue that has five parts to it. Part one, the head is gold. Part two, the chest and arms is silver. Part three, basically the thighs and the waist is bronze. The legs iron, the feet iron mixed with clay. Now, just just observe for a minute, just either what I just said or looking at this. What can you say as you go from the top to the bottom? What can you say about the quality of these things? It becomes less and less qualitative, less and less valuable. I mean, you go from gold to a mixture of iron and clay. That's a significant shift, isn't it? So one of the things, and you'll see this, it's exactly correct. All of the, because we'll we'll learn this coming up. These are the empires that are being discussed, and there's no doubt this is what they're being discussed. And you go from the Babylonian empire to the empire that will characterize the end times. It is declining in its power. It's declining in its importance. Nebuchadnezzar ruled a coherent, unified empire. The second one, silver, that was not a coherent, unified, it was a divided empire into two parts. And the Greek empire was highly decentralized, in Alexander the Great. And Rome was the most decentralized of them all, held together by law, raw power. And as soon as Rome's power started to diminish, what happened to its empire? It fell apart. So you historically you can see this, but it's just the symbol of this in, the, in the, the metals indicates from something very valuable to something not very valuable at all. Something mixed with iron and clay, that's not terribly valuable. That's not going to last very long either. So we get an overview from the dream. Verse 34. You continued looking until, this is a very important verse, until a stone cut without hands struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed at the same time, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. Then the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole In Daniel chapter 7, I told you to note this. I don't know if you remember asking you to do that. But connect with Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Who is the stone cut without human hand? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question. Who is the stone cut without human hand? Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he's called the Son of Man you see what happens as we go through the book of Daniel we get more and more information about this we get more and more detail all you have here is a big statue and some stone cut without a human man rolling down a mountain crushing the statue now as we see it interpreted in the next verses we see we, this, is, this is the point these Gentile dominated kingdoms aren't going to last they will be destroyed by this, using the words of Daniel 7, by the Son of Man, who established the kingdom of God. That's what I said earlier at the beginning, where if you understand what Daniel's teaching, God's going to win. God's kingdom's going to be established on earth. Because presently, planet earth is in rebellion against God. These kingdoms manifest the political dimension of that rebellion. None of these rulers... None of these kingdoms acknowledge God as the true God. But there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he, Jesus, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So all all this dream is doing is saying, here's the structure of world history and here's how it's going to end. Now verse 36, the interpretation occurs. Daniel has just told Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed. This is what you dreamed. Dreamt. I think that's the better way to pronounce it. Now he's going to interpret it. Verse 36. My watch battery stopped as I was driving here. My, I looked at my watch and it stopped at a quarter of 11. So, but we still have about 15 minutes. This was the dream. Now shall we tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, and the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And that is true. The Babylonian Empire was the most integrated, coherent empire of the ancient world. It was It was a remarkable empire.
1: And, and God caused that to happen. That's
0: correct. That's correct.
1: He, he, he's trying to tell him that God puts you where you are. That's right. Today.
0: That's this right. That's what's going to happen in the future. That's right. That's right. And see, and this is just think about this again, contrasting the two worldviews, the Babylonian, the, the, the biblical worldview. Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, You are in that place of power because God put you there. You owe all that you are because God put you there. That's that's remarkable. Not Marduk, but Yahweh my God remember Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the Jews and this Jewish guy is telling him my God put you there and the next chapter and the chapter after that and the chapter that's introduced in the last of these, of these sections Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this lesson and he is going to learn that God the God of Daniel is the true God because that God is going to curse him with mental illness for seven years It's a a great passage. I I love this, so I'm getting excited. Here we go. Uh, Verse, uh, where am I? Verse 39. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, we will learn coming up in the next section, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a... It's a two-headed empire, and that's inferior in quality and in power to the Babylonian. And a third kingdom, which is bronze, as you will learn, we'll see it in the next section, that's Greece, that's Alexander the Great, which will rule over the whole earth. Verse 40, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks into pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces." And that's how Rome ruled. Anyone, you, Rome didn't bother you unless you did not follow Rome's way. Then it crushed you. One of the best examples of that are the, uh, the, the great, um, what are called the Punic Wars, but that Rome fought with the Carthage in the Western Mediterranean. They just absolutely crushed them, killed them all, burned their city, and sowed their city in salt so that it would never again rise. That's how Rome crushed Then verse 41, so this, you have gold, silver, bronze, iron. Now you have this fifth one. This is the most complicated one. And in that you saw the foot, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be divided, a divided kingdom. It will have the toughness of iron inasmuch as as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be brittle, And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another. in the seed of men, they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not adhere to combine with pottery. Now that is, verse 42 and 43 are very hard. But in a way they're not. The fifth kingdom, this is the kingdom that will characterize earth right before Christ comes back. We know that because of verse 44. It will be the kingdom associated with the Antichrist. As you'll see in Daniel chapter 7, he has the title of the little horn. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what this is describing, that final kingdom of Gentile world history. It's going to be a mixed kingdom. It's not going to come together very tightly. As a matter of fact, as Antichrist's power begins to diminish, the world rebels against him, which is what produces Armageddon. So what is being, I mean, this is just very broadly laid out. As we get in chapter 7, we're going to find a lot more about it. As we get in chapter 8, we're going to find even more about it. As we get in chapter 11, we're going to find a great deal about it. So it's just telling us this final kingdom is not going to be a very strong kingdom at all. Then verse 44, a great passage. And in the days of those kings, what kings? The final kingdom of 42 and 43. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom. It will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. It will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountains without human hands, It crushed the iron and bronze and clay and silver and gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. The stone cut without human hands, we learn throughout the rest of the Bible, is Jesus Christ. And Revelation 19 says that he comes back, defeats his enemies, and some of the language that is used in verse 44 and 45 is used of Jesus in Revelation 19. So what did we learn? Well, let me put it this way. What did Nebuchadnezzar learn from this dream and now its interpretation? God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, has just revealed the framework for history to me. Chapter 3 gives us an indication of what Nebuchadnezzar does with that information. He built a gold statue of himself and insists that everybody bow down and worship. Did he learn the lesson? No. And so he, his mind must have gone something like this. If my head is gold, or the head of the statue is gold, I'm going to build a statue that's enormous. I'm going to make the whole statue gold. And I want everybody to bow down and worship me. And God is going to say, okay, if that's what you're going to do, then I will intervene and demonstrate to you that I am far greater than anything you can imagine. And then the next chapter, chapter 4, God is going to make Nebuchadnezzar mentally ill for seven years until he acknowledges that the God of Daniel is His God, the true, supreme, sovereign God of the universe, and we'll read about that. I don't know how long it'll take us to get to that point, but so this is this is really an exciting. I find it incredibly exciting, but a very exciting passage of Scripture. Now listen to me, man, know, as if you're not listening to me. But this framework that we've just briefly seen, and this sort of tries to capture is going to be built upon as we go through the rest of the book. and As a matter of fact, for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible starts adding more and more information to this. By the time you're at the end of the book of Revelation, you have a clarity of understanding about all five of these kingdoms plus the kingdom of God, which is what the end of Revelation is all about. God is going to triumph. He's going to set up his kingdom. And all, all those in rebellion against him will be crushed. There will be no more rival kingdoms. The kingdom of God will be established. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. That is where history is headed. The triumph of God's kingdom. Iran is of no threat to God. North Korea, God doesn't lose sleep over North Korea. God isn't particularly anxious or anxiety-ridden about Vladimir Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine. Not that those things aren't important, but don't ever think that stuff worries God. Why he allows it to happen, why he permits it, I, I can't answer that. But every, every, there is no exception to this. Every ruler that shakes his fist at God joins the dustbin of history, and there are no exceptions to that. And as the United States gets farther, and I mean distant, that's why I'm using farther, farther and farther away from God's values, his morals, and his ethical standards, we are supremely arrogant if we think we will be the exception. That's not going to happen. All right, let me find out what time it is. Let me conclude chapter two with it's 46 and 40 through 49. It's just what happens to Daniel. He's done what Nebuchadnezzar demanded. And King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. This is amazing. And did homage to Daniel. I do not know this for certain, but I doubt very much if he ever did that to any of his other advisors. Ever and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered, surely your God, now please notice that, your God, not my God, not the God, but your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. What does that mean? Daniel is now head of all the court advisers. Daniel is now, what would we call that? Um, we don't have anything like that. Like the prime minister, if you were in England, a parliamentary system. It would be like the prime minister. But they didn't have that back, so it's about the closest we can get. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel's brought these three men into the court, and and Nebuchadnezzar answers that. So Daniel has now been elevated. He's prime minister, and he's head over everything. And he brings these three Jewish advisors. Remarkable elevation, because he did what God asked him to do. He told the truth, and he left the results to God. It's an amazing story. So we've learned an awful lot in chapter 2. My question is, are you with me, or did I lose you? Isn't that a great chapter, isn't it? Yeah. Good. As All right.
1: I don't know how we could understand this stuff well just reading the black on the white. I think no. this is imperative. Yeah. I, mean, I really think that you cover it thoroughly. And I'm grateful for your willingness to
0: do that. Oh my goodness! Thank you, Thank Woody. You. I, I praise the Lord for that. I love, I love to teach this stuff, and if you guys keep showing up. I'll keep teaching you. If you don't show up, then I know God wants to move on to something else. But as long as you keep showing up, we'll, we'll go through this. Now, next week, we're chapter 3, which is the very famous fiery furnace thing. Okay? I, and I know I give you assignments. I don't know if you do them. This is a little shorter than this chapter, but you had two weeks to do this last assignment. So you only have a week. It's 30 verses. This is very, very, very familiar. But as you read it, what I, what I want you to notice is what happens when Nebuchadnezzar sees someone else in that fiery furnace. What's his response? Notice that very, very, very carefully. What is his response? And he uses words that are a little different. And as we get into chapter four, of the week after that, you're going to see that it becomes even more precise. What is happening? And this is the question I want you to do- to think with me about as you read this. What is happening to Nebuchadnezzar's view of Daniel's God? What is changing? What's happening to him? And that's what we- we'll be. It's very familiar, but I'm going to try to add some things about the furnace and what this really was, and and so on. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this. Uh, It's a magnificent passage of Scripture. It's probably familiar to us. Um, These are some of the things that we learn even in Sunday school class when we're young. But it's important for us to see the real power of this passage. As Daniel prayed when he interceded for all the rulers and advisors and and pleading for your compassion and your mercy, he sought your will and he reviewed again your power, O God, and your wisdom that you chose to reveal this to Daniel. Daniel said, I didn't do this. I was merely the vehicle. And you shocked Nebuchadnezzar, dear Lord, with the framework of human history that you revealed to him through this dream. And helping us, who have the advantage of 66 books of your Bible, we have the complete revelation to really understand that stone cut without human hands is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just keep getting more and more information, more and more insight, understand this isn't just a stone it's a living person it's a second person of the trinity he will triumph and he will bring the kingdom of god to earth and all these false kingdoms all these rebellious kingdoms will be crushed and the true kingdom of god will be established on earth if we put our faith in jesus christ we're going to be a part of that we're going to rule and reign with jesus we're a joint heir with him the language of the bible uses to describe us So it's exciting what our destiny is, or not to make it a cliche, but we are on the winning side. We're going to see your triumph over evil, your vanquishing of all your enemies, and the establishment of the true righteous kingdom of God. We're going to be citizens of that, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus. So thank you for these great truths. Be with these men in their busy lives and all their responsibilities. We commit each one of them to you. We pray for Susie today and his mother-in-law and the concern that I'm sure she has, I'm sure some anxiety that she has. Thank you for medical people. Thank you for the doctors who are giving her counsel. May they give uh, discerning and wise counsel that this series of procedures that apparently they're going to use now would be successful. We plead with you for that. We intercede on behalf of her for that. But Lord, we ultimately end up trusting you you know the future you know why this has happened you have purposes for these kinds of things that we cannot imagine we have to trust you with it as uh, we all learn day in and day out trusting you even when we don't understand is one of the hallmarks of faith so help us to do that and again i just commit this dear lady to you so lord as we go into the rest of our wednesday and throughout the rest of this week enable us to please represent you well in christ's name See you next week.